Welcome to the PokePress Digest Podcast, a Pokemon news magazine show. Here you'll find some of the best content offered by our site. For more, visit us at pokepress.blogspot.com. In this single segment episode, Anne from Piggy Podcast drops by to help cover the music of the 13th Pokemon movie, Zoroark, Master of Illusions. Sukuma Switch and Aaron Bowman go head-to-head this time around, though there may be another entrant that comes in later. Also, it seems Anne had a somewhat different opinion of the movie than I did, so stay tuned after the outro. Thanks. Hi, I'm Stephen Reich here at the Poke Press Studios in Madison, Wisconsin. I'm on the phone with Anne from PP Podcast. And we're doing another in our series of comparisons of the Japanese and English ending themes of the Pokemon movies. This time around, we're up to movie 13, Zoroark, Master of Illusions. I think I've called it Ruler of Illusions, which, you know, depending on how you translate it. But Master of Illusions is the official English title, But just so you know. In any event, the two songs we have to work with here on the Japanese side, we have Ice Cream Syndrome by Sukuma Switch. And on the English side, we have I Believe in You by Aaron Bowman. And uh, actually, in fact, we're going to have a third song a little bit later that we'll talk about a little bit. But uh, for our our initial discussion, those are going to be the two songs. And what can you tell me about Sukuma Switch? Um, Well, they are officially a rock-jazz fusion duo. Um, They usually get classified under J-pop just because... They're popular and they're from Japan, um, but that's their official designation is rock jazz. Um, their members are Ohashi Takia and Tokita Shintaro. Uh, Shintaro is the one with the afro. Um, and Takia's he, what he does is he does the vocals, the guitar, and the harmonica. Uh, Shintaro plays piano and keyboards. And they have a couple other musical instruments and sometimes bring on other musicians on stage or on the studio for any instruments they can't play and have been compared to Steely Dan, especially with their band dynamics and jazz influence. I'm not up enough on the jazz scene to pass comment on if that's true, but people say it is. And it's not really what they're known for, but they have gotten quite a few of their singles on video games or as anime tie-ins. If you're a big fan of Naruto or Full Metal Alchemist, um, you have probably heard Tsukima Switch. Um, by themselves, they also work as composers and producers on various projects. So again, you've probably heard their music before if you watch a lot of anime or television from Japan. Tsukima Switch debuted in 2003 and... They kind of went through a period where they stopped producing new content for a while. It was kind of compilation albums mostly. But I was actually just reading an article in May that says they're putting out a new album. So um, they're still active and still putting out new things, it seems. Um, Let's see. Catchy Pop is also a huge part of their sound, although I said they've always been jazz and rock influence. Um, And this newest album is said to kind of be going a bit back to those those more catchy poppy roots. So expect something upbeat from whatever this album is. It's kind of hard to find stuff about them in English. So how they met and and how they got started, I, I didn't find much about it. But I did read over their official site in Japanese and tried to translate some of it. It seems they debuted officially with their first single in 2003, but were appearing together as early as 1999 competing in festivals and such. Um, There's something about them performing on the main stage at 
Augusta Camp 2002 for 30,000 people. So it seems that they were making some headway. And they said 2003 was their first single release view. And they've just kept building up steady momentum ever since. And they're both about 40 years old now and still going. Um, and, and unfortunately, that's about as good as I got. Uh, most of their info is in Japanese and difficult to read. What about Ice Cream Syndrome? Any idea how that song came about or how it got attached to the movie? Um, I, I feel a bit like a broken record, but I think like many of the, the Japanese side ones that came before it, it was probably the band was contacted to do a song for the ending theme while the film was in production and probably didn't have as much info about what the plot would be as we would have liked. And it was kind of more of a tie-in situation than, you know, crafting a song based on, you know, deeply on the plot of the movie. And I think the lyrics reflect that because they are, they are not super tied in specifically and literally to the events of the movie. I think it's fair to say, yeah, it was produced out of house and as a tie-in rather than produced for the movie specifically. We'll get more into that later. In any case, uh, who did they write this song, though? Do you know that? Yeah, yeah. They um, Lyrics, production, composition, arrangement, everything. They produce everything in-house. And Tokita is, oversees the entire composition process. And Takia is on lyrics. So, yeah, no, they did everything themselves. Okay, well, if we head back over to the English side, Erin Bowman... This is not her first time working with the uh, dub of the Pokemon anime. You may remember her first contribution was Battle Cry Stand Up, which was the theme to, let's see, I guess it was the third English opening theme. It, it's also an extended version of it appears in the Arceus movie, which we talked about last time around. Mm-hmm. And uh, as far as her backstory, she pretty much got into music straight out of high school. I think she she had a, a YouTube channel. You might be able to dig around it and find some of that stuff. But uh, apparently she caught the uh, notice of J.J. Appleton, which should be a somewhat familiar name. He did the Battle Frontier opening theme song for Season 9 and is uh, somewhat in the loop with John Leffler and some of the other folks. So that sort of explains why the start of her career led very quickly to work in Pokemon, I guess. Uh, in addition to the um, Battle Cry and this song, she also did a song, an insert song in the fourth generation you hear periodically called This Is The Moment, is uh, the best official title we have. It's been shown in the credits in certain places. And uh, in the next movie, movie 14, she does the opening theme, uh, Black and White, but we'll obviously talk about that when we cover that movie. In any case, outside of Pokemon, sort of the best-known single she had was uh, Problem. And uh, remember, it goes, you know, you know what your problem is, you think you don't have a problem. That was one of her original mm -hmm. things there. And uh, that actually did pretty well. It got into, like, the top 40 of radio, so that might be one um, uh, you've heard. There's also, let's see, uh, King Boy that came out in 2013, Hey Summer, uh, she had a song called Keep Me Warm that was actually used in an advertising campaign by McDonald's. Oh, Good Time, Good Life, which uh, appeared on a, actually kind of a, a couple different TV shows. You might have heard it on NBC's This Is Us. This is a lot from the uh, Wikipedia article, in case you're wondering. Uh, most of the same information is available on her website. And let's see, Hawaii Five-0, it says. And actually, it was... Um, 
used in an Oscar promo, like a, a TV spot for the for the Oscars. And uh, she's also, let's see, Good Morning America, Radio Disney Music Awards. She uh, had a performance there and live with Kelly and Ryan. So uh, she's still active today. She may, in fact, be the like person who has parlayed doing Pokemon work into a more, I guess you could say, mainstream or normal music career better than perhaps anyone on the English side. I mean, granted, you have stuff from like the first movie, like m2m or you know emma button solo career but uh hers you know she never reached quite those heights i guess you could say with some of that but she she's still going and still doing stuff i think I've, if you look at her twitter feed i thought she mentioned maybe she had a bit part in like the la production of hamilton or something but i, I can't totally oh, verify oh. that anywhere yeah so she's i believe lives in the la area now she moved she originally came from new jersey and has since moved out there but still very active and still doing stuff well, good for her. <laughs> yep, yeah. As far as this particular song, uh, John Leffler and David Wolfert wrote it. So we can pretty much guarantee it was written for this movie. I think once we start talking about the lyrics, there'll be some definite tie-ins there. Mm-hmm. But uh, that takes care of part one. Part two, we talk about the songs, sort of their style, their content, their lyrics, all that fun stuff. Swap back over to the Japanese side. How would you sort of describe the sound of Ice Cream Syndrome? Well, I, I would definitely say that this has more of its pop influences, not in the upbeat pop, but kind of just in the fact that it's got a very catchy melody and it's kind of got maybe like it's almost too soft to be rock, but it's like it's just a very understated percussion, like just a drum kit and an acoustic guitar. Uh, and like I said, just a very beautiful single singer metal melody that's quite catchy and like you can definitely see like little bits of the jazz and and the rock influence but i would definitely say this song is a lot more of the, the pop like this is more top 40 than i think some of their other material but not in the real upbeat and hardcore dance track type pop that you sometimes think of when you think of j-pop and and it kind of surprised me it's not so vastly different i think from the english side because it just they both have kind of those same instrumentations yeah there's definitely a, a warmth quality to the sound there with the um guitar i think there yeah there's definitely some guitar and piano in there to be honest the sort of the the vibe i got overall is that if there's a japanese equivalent to light radio or whatever you want to call it <laughs> This song would uh, would be on there, not to disparage it or anything, but that's definitely the vibe I got. That this is sort of like the the Japanese um, adult contemporary kind of thing. <laughs> it, it definitely gives you that kind of vibe. Do you agree with that? I I do, and yeah, you're right. It's not a disparaging thing, but yeah, it's a it's a genre that like I said it technically is pop. It technically could be a soft rock power thing, but. Yeah, it's kind of something else in between. What about the lyrics? Uh, I did read a translation on Bulbapedia before we went into this, but it, it sounds like from what you said earlier that there's not a ton of direct time, but what is the, the song talking about? Right, yeah, it's definitely a metaphorical connection. There's a few lyrics about illusion and distortion, but as it connects to the movie's plot, the it's tenuous. Um it's about someone realizing that the status quo of their friendship has a time limit. And if you don't act, it will disappear like uneaten ice cream on a hot day. 
So the song is really full of vivid imagery of a hot summer day, and it's got fun times and sweetness and warmth, but it's also sweltering because they want their friendship to be more and can't find relief from the heat of those feelings. And if they eat the figurative ice cream, if they act on these feelings, that, that ice cream will be gone. The friendship they treasured will be no more. It will become something else. But if they don't act, the ice cream will melt and disappear that way. So friendship is a syndrome. And they kind of, they love it, but they suffer from it too. But there's a happy ending. By the end of the song, they found hope and happiness and plan to eat the proverbial ice cream and enjoy that happiness, even if it doesn't last. Yeah, from what I read in the translation, it sounded like there is definitely a, a sense that, you know, opportunities, they're only here for a limited time and you do have to take advantage of them when they when they appear. And that seems like, it sounds like that's uh, your impression as well. Yeah, and like I said, there is some metaphorical connection. Like I can see if um, Skima Suich was given kind of the general themes and ideas of the movie, like this is about illusions, it's about being able to trust each other. That's one of the threads that runs through the movie a lot and people being separated and stuff like that, like them writing a song that metaphorically fulfills all these things. But as it applies directly to the movie, the thing that strikes me the most is that this is the last Diamond and Pearl movie we got. And coming to the end of that series, it was the last we would see of Dawn on the big screen and of Brock in the party and running out of time for Pikachu and Piplup and their little bromance. So as a viewer, knowing that and going into the movie as the credits roll and it suddenly hits you that like, oh, this is the last time I'll see them like this. The end is coming. The song kind of hits me with a special meaning, like our time with these characters is so short and their time together is short. It can disappear as quickly as that melted ice cream. And, you know, those lyrics of looking through the viewfinder and they're already far away and go. The jet plane is taking them somewhere far away from us. So I don't know how intentional that was, but if that was the intention, that's a very beautiful thing for the fans, I think, who, you know, grow to love these characters and especially Brock, who we had a long time with and knowing he's about to go in for reels this time. Well, certainly in hindsight, we would know that. Yeah, I guess uh, being as this is the last Diamond and Pearl movie, there is sort of a double meaning there. Yeah, like the only other things I I get some feel of this concept with like illusion, the illusion world that Zora was from and. And the fact that we meet these legendaries like Entei and Raiko and Suicune and we form bonds with like Celebi and stuff. And then at the end of the movie, the legendary always has to go. And the characters we meet in the movies, you know, it's only for a short time and then we go our separate ways. And like there is a sense of wanting to reach out and maybe keep this for a little longer or maybe act and change the status quo. But will that break everything? So like I won't say it doesn't fit with the movie, but I feel like I'm having to dig more. I feel like what it brings to the movie is the mood it evokes more than anything literal happening in the words. Yeah, definitely some, I guess you could say, stretched metaphors, if that's a phrase. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, if we swap back over to the English side, that one I think, I, I do feel like it, it's really interesting. It has... There's a bit more force behind it on that one in terms especially in terms of the vocals I would say and definitely like on the bridge there's a 
a little bit of a harder guitar edge there than we get in Ice Cream Syndrome. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, I would definitely say there's a bit more of what what did you say force or power behind it on this one? Like there's a lot of similarities, but this one has a bit more intensity to it. Yeah, and uh, you know there there are a couple of lyrics in there. Now I, I I at least tried to relate this as sort of the Zorua and Zoroark uh, relationship in the movie, and I'm not sure if Aaron's voice, which one that's supposed to be in there. It's sort of a there are some definite two way similarities. If you know what I mean, they sort of have a similar relationship to each other. Is that sound? Yeah. <laughs> no, I feel yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we don't know a ton about what they were like before the events of this movie, before Kodai sort of, you know, captured them or whatever for this scheme. But it does seem like they have a very close relationship, which is interesting. Yeah, and it's definitely an implied sort of mother-child thing. So, you know, you being there for me in my darkest days, you came for me when I lost my way. Like that definitely plays a part. I, I'm always just really struck by all the all the stuff about I believe in you, just because that's the one metaphor and thread in the movie that really got pulled out for me. I, I think you appreciate this movie overall a bit more than I did, but that that line that kept getting repeated of, you know, do you trust me? Do you believe in me? And you know, that final one between Ash and Brock where it's like, eat some more scenes of stuff. Like just oh my heart. So I keep pulling that one out as like the traveling party, as well as the Pokemon, just their ability to all trust in each other and the Pokemon's ability to trust Celebi, despite like all the illusions and everything that's happening, the entire gang kind of coming together to make the plot work and trick Kodai. And Yeah, and there's actually one line in there I really wanted to call out. It says, I know who you really are. Oh, yeah. That is... I think very specific to some of the stuff that happens in this movie because you have, you know, the illusion uh, ability of the two Pokemon there. And so I just felt that was obviously that can have, you know, meaning within the franchise well outside of, of that. But for this movie in particular, I felt that was a, a fairly clever line. Yeah. And wasn't there, oh, what was her name? Was it Rowena, the dark haired? woman like wasn't she playing a part kind of when we first meet her and then we find she's actually on the side of good am i yeah kodai's personal secretary is a recent hire who turns out is a plant um mm -hmm. to sort of figure out what he's actually up to when he's visiting uh the city there yeah there's a lot of like little things throughout this movie like i think like i haven't researched it but i think that definitely was one of the themes tying the whole movie together because like the later Pokemon movies are all based around like one concept. And I think believing in you and who you really are, like believing through the illusion is the concept that tied this movie together. Cause there's a lot of stuff like that where people are not what they appear and people having to trust each other, even though they're presenting a, a face that is false or, or there's an illusion going on that they're not aware of. And I know who you really are kind of facilitating that trust through the situation. So I, I do think that it's not as specific, like the, like some of the lyrics are vaguer, but the metaphors in this song do tie into the themes of the movie very well. What do you think of Aaron singing in here, particularly compared to some of her other work? I, I, I wish I could, you know, I don't have a good enough musical vocabulary to say 
what she does so well, but I can totally see why she's going on to have such a, a successful career. Yeah, I, I think it was last episode where I said I, I wasn't as much a fan of her voice, but it kind of grew on me by the end of the song. This is one where right out of the gate, I am much more on board with it. There's There's something about her singing voice that is quite earnest. And I think I'm not as big of a fan of light and breathy from her, but like when she kind of digs a little deeper and like lets a little bit of a that that rasp and a soul out and a warmth, I, I find that there's something about her that you just kind of want to believe. Like you believe the feelings that she is trying to convey to you. So I, I think she's just very good at using her vocal instrument to to convey feelings. Like like I'm like she has lovely tone and all those things too, but like that's what st- strikes to me is like she's not just a good singer of like being able to hit all the notes perfectly. She's very good at being able to convey the emotion through the song she's given. All right. So next up is our third part, or at least it would be. We usually we would go to the next where we sort of compare and contrast and decide which one we like better. But we did kind of want to mention here there is at least one other ending theme song if you uh, dig through deep enough. And that's on the Korean edition. They have a different ending song. It's by a performer named, I think, Yoon Ha, and it's called, what, uh, In My Dream or something like that? Yeah, I don't know how we how to translate this. It, Bulbapedia is translating it as Inside a Dream. I think the one you found on YouTube Music was was In My Dreams. So that's a question. Um, but yeah, she's a Korean Korean singer, um, songwriter, and apparently producer too. Um, but actually got her start in Japan and like had a lot of success through through that market before she was able to make it big in her hometown of Korea. She's actually nicknamed the Oricon Comet for being able to like just shoot up the charts like that. And I am so glad you hipped me to this song, man. This is so wonderful. I love it. It's pretty good. Uh, it's it's got. Of all the three songs we're talking about in this episode, I'd say it's it's probably the most energetic. If you want to do a continuum, you sort of have Ice Cream Syndrome, I Believe in You, and then uh, this one. Does that sound about right? <laughs> yeah, this one, like, skipping about five steps in between, yes. <laughs> like, she's just uh, such passion. Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, we, I only found out about this one really today. Uh, it does seem like... It sort of has themes in common based on this translation I was able to find. Uh, sort of with the both of the other songs, there's definitely sort of the friendship and you know being a part of each other's lives uh, stuff here in this. Uh, it looks like it starts off mentioning something about the moon sets and the and the sun rising and stuff like that. So you know I can see why it, at least on on the the high level view why it would have been picked up for this movie. Uh, does that sound about right? Yeah, and like, who knows if it was made, how much it was made for the movie and how much it was just a tie-in. But I, yeah, I find a lot of little things like the sense of a clumsy self leaning on someone else's shoulders and then that's taken away and having to look out and like trusting me and believing in me. The, that that thread always gets to me. And there's like a verse about like under the same sky is everyone who's just like me and it becomes so familiar and I'm only comforted like when we're together. And then there's a sense of like that being separated, but we're still together. So like I get some sort of Zora Zoroark 
um, images from it. Like those are sort of universal feelings. I, I suppose many songs could fulfill that for me, but it, it is a nice choice, I think, of song. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad. Uh, I'm glad we looked this one up and and found out about it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I guess now it is time to get to to part three. We'll we'll try and consider all three of these songs, I suppose. As far as comparing them, like I said, we did sort of draw that that sort of line there from uh, in terms of like. Uh, Maybe I don't know if tempo is a correct term to use here, but sort of like energy and emotion. There's definitely sort of a, a line you can draw these as three points on. I would say, to be honest, I I have to say I like all three of these songs. These are all good songs, mm. but I definitely think that I believe in you is my pick. If I had to pick one of these three, the other ones are maybe if this is a horse race, they're a length or two behind, so they're doing reasonably well. Um, it's not quite a photo finish, I think, but but I believe in you sort of got me just because it, I really like Erin singing. I think she does a great job there. I hope they can bring her back at some point. That'd be really nice. But I, I think the the energy and the chorus, it, to be honest, in sort of the, the pantheon of English songs, I think this is sort of just below that sort of nebulous area in my list. So like in my list of the best English ending theme songs, there's The Power of One. And then right below that, there's sort of We're a Miracle and uh, Make-A-Wish and uh, I Choose You are sort of tussling for like the second through uh, fourth spots. And then I think this is probably not far behind that. It's it's maybe not as good as those. It's it's getting pretty close. And I think Erin does a standout job, especially given that this was much earlier in her career, I think. I can totally understand after listening to this why she has gone on to to do so well, and I think we're going to be seeing even more from her in the future. But um, with with that setup, Anne, what are your thoughts here? Ah, uh, well, to be honest, this is not my favorite Pokemon movie, and part of it might be just for whatever reason it didn't strike me so much when I first saw it, and it's been one of the ones that's harder for me to have watched a second time. I've only seen it all the way through once. And yeah, so I'm I'm not as tuned into the deeper meanings and the metaphors and, and the analysis that I love to bring to each and every movie. And so with that, I think it's harder for me to do an analysis on the songs. I like all three of them, but none of them really jump out at me and like, this is the movie. So I'm going to give it to Miss Go Yeon Ha, whose name I probably can't pronounce, whose songs like I can't sing. But there's just such power behind her voice and such emotions. And I really do feel the lyrics fit as well as I Believe in You, which would have been my pick otherwise for how it connects to the movie. But yeah, no, I'm going to give it to Inside Inside a, a Dream and not say much else. <laughs> I suppose so. Now, I, I should point out, we'll talk more about the movie later, but I should point out that I had a somewhat different experience with this movie than you did. Now, I think you did. <laughs> I did originally see it on Cartoon Network, and they had this weird thing where they cut out like the first part, like five or ten minutes of the movie for some reason. But not long after, maybe a few months later or whatever, I got a chance to see it at part of the Black and White Mall Tour. You may not remember, but for the release of Pokemon Black and White in 2011, they did this mall tour across the United States. And uh, I went to the stop at the Mall of America near the Twin Cities. 
and uh, got to see it there. Now, the, sort of the interesting thing there was it was a, a film projection on a, a theater that was mostly used for digital projection these days, and they didn't have the sound set up right for like the first 30 seconds to a minute there. They get, did get that <laughs> fixed, and of course, that meant I got to see the whole movie and then the end credits – and uh, got to experience that way with the theater, not completely full, but pretty packed with Pokemon fans, which was oh, nice. obviously a different experience than seeing it uh, at home on TV or on DVD or whatever. Mm. So maybe that's why I have a bit more of an attachment. And they gave you some nice stuff, too. On the way out, they give you, they gave me a, a jumbo card with Zoro and Celebi on it, which was a very nice touch that they do things like that. So... I think I had a bit of a different experience with this movie. That may be why I enjoy it a little bit more. Yeah, that does sound sound really fun. Yeah, no, I was definitely watching it by myself with a friend's friend's Japanese DVD, and <laughs> it was just for some reason, like the more I think about the bits I have seen, like I do think I will probably appreciate this movie more in the future. But for some reason, at the time, it didn't strike me as special and important in the way many others did. So I think I'm think I'm going to have to come around on my feelings in the future. But <laughs> yeah, like I said, well, let me talk a little bit more about the movie itself in a little bit. But we've got kind of more to talk about with music. Um, mm-hmm. This one does not have an opening uh, vocal theme. It doesn't use I guess it would have been We Will Carry On on the English side. And then on the Japanese side, I'm trying to think what it would The ha- Greatest Every Day. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. That's a good <laughs> song there. Yeah, fourth gen Japanese, I have to give a lot of credit. Just on the TV side, they do a, a pretty good job there. There are some fun ones, yes. <laughs> but we don't get that with this one. It's a kind of a, well, it's sort of subdued, but they don't have a, a scene. I mean, I guess they could have played it over the uh, the TV showing of, I forget, it's called Bakker or something like that, the the sports they're playing with the Pokemon there. I guess if they did an extended version of that, maybe they could have dubbed it in over there. Maybe that would have worked, but I don't know. What do you think? I'm trying to remember. Like, I know there were a couple riffs on the Japanese side of, like, Hikari's theme, like Kimi no Sobade, By Your Side. There definitely could have been a place to have played the opening thing, yeah, over the Bobaker match. So I'm very surprised that that's not what they chose to do. Like a full kind of bombastic opening theme remix situation that they tend to do when there's a Pokemon battle. Yeah, so I guess that might have been the best opportunity they have. But yeah. with that being said, uh, I guess we got to talk then about the score. So like I said, this is in fourth generation. So the Japanese score is more or less being kept with the the English dub, other than maybe a few exceptions. Mm-hmm. I think sort of the standout part of this is obviously the reprise of Celebi's theme from the fourth movie, bringing that back. Obviously very yeah. nostalgic, uh, maybe a little bit of pandering there, but I think they did some some pretty nice stuff with that. Uh, how about you, Anne? What do you think? I, I agree. I think there was a throwback to Entei's theme from movie three as well. So like those are just nice touches. I suppose so, but since that one was still using uh, an alternate American score, I guess maybe that's why it didn't resonate with me. That's true, yeah. Like I, I, I don't know if they necessarily did that on the English side or not, but but yeah, but like those callbacks to previous legendary themes uh, of Celebi definitely like are just really nice little little moments. But if I had to sort of criticize it on that end, we don't have, I don't think, a really memorable theme for like Zoroa and Zoroark, which I think would have been a good counterpoint since they are, you know, ostensibly the 
main figures of the movie. Yes, there's Celebi. Yes, there's the legendary beasts. But, you know, that that's those are supposed to be the, you know, Zoro and Zoroark are the fifth generation Pokemon. This is the quote-unquote preview movie, like movie eight. It it seems to me that if Celebi gets a, a theme, it seems like the, the quote-unquote stars should have had a more distinct theme, too. Uh, what do you think about that? No, I agree. They should have had it. Even just as main characters, they should have had a slightly more recognizable or, you know, something with a little more care put into it. Like, I I don't even remember the the musical riff for their theme. And you wouldn't do that to a main character of any other movie. So It's just something I noticed. I mean, obviously, when you go all the way back to movie four and movie three, like movie four on on the Japanese side, and you know the English score is ported over there. That's when they started doing that. Celebi has a very distinct theme towards the end of the movie, not throughout the entire movie, but for that big climactic scene there. And you know we've kind of lamented that in the more recent movies on the Japanese side, the scores have just not had that many memorable original pieces in there. And I think this movie sort of sort of. Uh, puts that on full display because Celebi has that theme and, and Zoroa and Zoroark do not have a easily recognizable theme. Yeah, like I don't really f- subscribe to the belief that like y- your soundtrack has failed if people don't walk out of the theater like humming part of it. But I definitely feel like if you're going back through the soundtrack and you're still feeling like you can't quite pick out whose theme is whose or, or like you're feeling a sense of disappointment that, yeah, that your soundtrack is a little weak. And I feel like this one, other than the way it weaves in some of the previous themes, it, it's a little lacking for me. And that's just quite sad. Yeah, you know, obviously kind of disappointing there. But, you know, I didn't dislike the score, at least while watching the movie there. And me, like like many of the more recent Japanese scores, I probably wouldn't find it as good on its own without the movie accompanying it. But there are some 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 decent moments there. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, we had, uh, I guess for once, maybe a, a shorter discussion here. But uh, we do plan on doing uh, another special episode, because this is, of course, the last Diamond and Pearl movie. And um, next up would be movie 14. That would be the Victini movie. But in between generations, we want to do another little special now, I don't want to be too hard on the folks out there, but you may have noticed in the last couple episodes, the Arceus movie and this one, we didn't have a listener feedback section. And sorry, there isn't really a great way to put this. That's just because we didn't get any, any feedback, either on the movie we were about to discuss or even really previous movies. And we, and we really want to include that stuff. And one of the reasons I point this out is that the original idea I had for doing between the fourth and fifth generation movies was remember back between the original series, movie five and uh, advanced generation movie six, we did a special episode where we each of us picked out a band that had never done a Pokemon song. And uh, we picked a couple of their songs that we thought could work as Pokemon songs and sort of discussed their, the band's history and all that stuff. And that was a lot of fun. And I wanted to do an episode where we discussed that, uh, have some of our listeners pick out some stuff that might work and and do that in the future. However, since we haven't gotten much feedback in the last couple of episodes, I really did not want to risk that. So we may wind up doing that in the future. So, so be thinking about that. If you have a, a favorite band that's never done a Pokemon song and you can think of some of their songs that would work there, keep that in mind and maybe even put that in the comments there for now. But um, 
our actual next episode is going to be a special episode, like we said. And we're going to be discussing European uh, Pokemon music, uh, specifically stuff for the European uh, dubs of the Pokemon anime. And a few other things in there. Now, you may be thinking, well, gee, isn't all that stuff just translated versions of, like, the the English stuff? Well, it is not. <laughs> if you have listened to some of ours, if you know that, first of all, for example, Italian does their own thing for their opening themes through the first uh, ten seasons or so. And there's actually a couple others. I do plan on talking about uh, a song called Du bist nicht allein, which was written and uh, featured in, I believe, the... German version of the second Pokemon movie, and there are a couple other special ones, but that's sort of going to be our next episode. So if you have anything uh, European you want us to discuss that is either significantly different, maybe from the English version or as an original song, go ahead, give us a comment on that, and we'll certainly take a look at that. And until then, Anne, thank you very much for talking to us again. Thank you so much for having me. This has been Stephen Reich from the PokePress Studios in Madison, Wisconsin, talking about the music of the Zoroark movie. Thanks for listening to the PokePress Digest podcast. We'd appreciate if you rate or review us on your podcast app of choice. If you'd like to find more of our great content, visit our website at pokepress.blogspot.com. If you'd like to contact us, send an email to pokepress at gmail.com or follow at pokepress on Twitter. talk about some of the stuff with this this movie you seem to i remember you talking like when you did movie four you said uh, in like the comments thread when you did the movie four episode for your podcast you said mm-hmm. uh i like you celebi but like your movies have problems yeah <laughs> <laughs> i did i'm trying to remember uh I mean, I can I can pick some nits with this movie, I suppose. I mean, they're not super totally consistent about what Zoroa and Zoroa can and can't do, I suppose, or how their illusions work. But right, yeah, there were. It's not that this movie is so horrendously awful. Like, it, there are just little things about consistency, the pacing of the plot. There is. A section of this movie where I felt like the energy just died and very much in comparison to movie four where it's just like there is a plot we are kind of moving forward we're having a lot of great character moments but this is not a good movie it is the same that thing that I felt about Zora when I saw it. it was just there were some really great moments and ideas and then there were moments where everything just seemed to fall flat or it seemed to come to a complete stop so we could have the team rocket scene so we could have the joke scene and as you said little inconsistencies about what can these characters do and what are their motivations and there was also a lot of side characters doing things that did not always seem super important like we could have had maybe two or three characters instead of five doing all those things especially considering that you also have to service Ashbrock and Dawn and then Team Rocket's got to get in there. And then the bad guy and his secretary. And then those two other Bakker fans. Like, There's just a lot of... Uh, yeah. I just don't feel that this movie was structured for success. <laughs> and it's not Celebi's fault. <laughs> I suppose so. I mean, like I said, yeah, it's definitely not awful. I would... You've mentioned in your podcast that you think that there's like an A unit and a B unit and they alternate movies. 
I almost wonder if there must be because there's no way that they uh, can consistently be like pretty amazing movie that's like tied together really well. And then this movie that just looks like it was a a patch job. (laughs) And yeah, when I look through the credits, like sometimes that suggests that I might not be entirely wrong on that, but who knows? (laughs) I suppose so. Yeah. No, this is actually, to be quite honest, uh, this was my favorite of the TPCI dubbed movies until I choose you, believe it or not. Really? Yes. This is the one I enjoyed the most. Can't definitively say it's the best of, you know, uh, 9 through 19. But I think part of it was actually having it in, seeing it in the theaters. That always makes a Pokemon movie better. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. Yeah, definitely Best Wishes had some some clunkers (laughs) in its time. But yeah, like I, and I I do want to caveat that like, as I move forward and finally do like the peak happy podcast analysis on this, I may find my opinions changing a little. Because as I said, I've not I've not lived with this movie as long as I've lived with some others that are also not perfect, but have since become my favorites, like movie eight. <laughs> but but I, yeah, I do feel that this was not one of the best that was ever done. I, maybe it's just because Diamond and Pearl had one of the greatest Pokemon movies in movie 10. And it's it's hard to live up to that. I suppose. I, I don't dislike Movie 10, but I, I actually do like this one better for whatever reason. Huh. All right. And I think it also, it finishes relatively strong, at least musically, with uh, the mm-hmm. stuff that it has at the end there. And, and I, I have noticed when playing video games and certain other types of media that if it's something has good music, I will inflate its score, you know, or whatever you want to say in my mind, just a little bit. Can I ask, what what is it about this movie that, like, struck you? What What is it about it that makes you love it? I, I think I just like the Zoroa-Zoroark relationship for whatever reason. I think... Oh, yeah? The, the way they're attached to each other is just something we don't see. And I, and I did notice, I think we see some of this in, in some of the other movies, but it seems like throughout uh, the Crown City or whatever it is, um, they have the... There are more uh, like families of Pokemon in there, like just not just a, a group of one species, but like an evolved form, and then several pre-evolutions of it around there. And I think that might have been uh, a deliberate choice there. Oh, and hey, yeah, maybe it was what's that girl's name, Peg or whatever, and the other dude. Like they were like had a family relationship too, didn't they? So. Yeah, maybe there is a deliberate thing there that I just didn't appreciate at the time. Hmm. Yeah, you know, I, I'd strongly suggest you give this one another chance sometime and maybe not in another, what, you you just finished movie six, so you got another, what, seven years or so? To, <laughs> yeah. If you're lucky. Maybe, maybe get a, to it a little faster. <laughs> give, it a, give it a watch. <laughs> no idea where the uh, band name came from then. No, because um, it's written in Katakana, so there's no kanji so i'm wondering if it might just be like a a prefecture oh like all it's coming up is like like a like a split or a crack so yeah it must mean something to them but i don't think i don't think there's much to say there if i had to guess maybe it refers to some sort of uh junction or or track thing in like the the japanese rail system or something oh that's such a good idea i you know what i think there is a tsukima train line 
So yeah, no, you might be onto something. You sh- you should be doing the Japanese side. Of that was a total guess on my part. So we could be right about that. We might not be. 